Hello. Let's start with three propositions. First, many people agree about the priorities we face now. Tackling climate change, reducing social and geographical inequality, making an ageing society a good thing, not a crisis. Second, a lot more people, including on the right, accept that government has a major role to play in meeting these challenges. Third, we all know that technology is going to continue to develop at an accelerating pace and have a huge impact on our lives. So put those three things together, and the question is this. How can government harness the power of innovation to tackle society's most important challenges? It's a question a lot of us are asking now, but it's also a question that my guest today was asking and answering long before it was fashionable, and on which she is advising governments all around the world. This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm delighted to be joined by Mariana Mazzucato, author of several highly influential books. She's professor in the economics of innovation and public value at University College London and founder director of the Institute of Innovation and Public Purpose. Her most recent book is Mission Economy, a moonshot guide to changing capitalism. Mariana, how are you? I'm fine. Glad to be here, Matthew. I think you've just had a cold water swim, haven't you? I've, I've had a cold water <laughs> swim as well. How long have you been doing that? Well, I had two cold water swims this morning because then it rained on me on the way back. But I've been doing that for about three years. And the nice thing is I do it with a constant group of women buddies. And we just went camping two weeks ago as well. So I'm feeling like a teenager. So it's everything, you're ahead of the curve. So I mean, I've been in cold water, I've been cold water swimming for a few weeks, and I'm very pleased with myself. And, but it's uh, no longer cold, Matthew. It doesn't count when it's in Oh, May. don't. Honestly, everything, it feels to me, everything you do is designed to make me small. Look, can I just say, the no. second time I did it, I did it in the Thames, because the lighter wasn't open. And in order to prove how kind of macho I was... Because the first time I went in, I just went in for about 10 seconds because I knew that that was all I could take. The second time, my mate swam across the Thames at Teddington. And I thought, well, I've done this once. I'll do it. You know, and I swam across the Thames. I swam back. I got out and I got after drop, you know, which is when you come out of the water, but you carry on getting colder. So my friend realized what was happening. And he took off all his clothes and hugged me as tightly as he could. So people were laughing that in my desperate oh my attempt God. to prove how macho I was, I ended up standing there being hugged by a naked man. But... <laughs> Anyway, I survived. I survived. And I am unashamed about the fact that when I go to the Lido, there's a couple of extra degrees in the water because there's a little sign that tells you it's a great relief to me. But anyway, I'm once again, not as bold, as brave or as fast as you are, Mariana. Now, I want to talk to you about where we are now in relation to this agenda and how we grasp this opportunity. The one I laid out in my opening, that there really seems to have been a shift. But just for that small tiny group of people who for some reason they've been hiding in a cave don't know about the kind of core of your argument the argument you've been making for several years now kind of remind us of what's at the heart of the case that you've been making for the role of government in driving innovation for the good of society so i think a good first place to begin is just to make clear that it's not really just about government it's that there's different actors in our economy. In government, I believe, has been the least theorized, the least imagined, 
the least reinvented. As Obama said, the last time we thought about the organization of government, we still had black and white TVs. So, you know, if you understand the economy as having both a rate and a direction, first point, and markets themselves as outcomes of how we govern public institutions, private institutions, civil society institutions, and also how they relate one to another, the question of how do we govern public institutions and how does government then relate to these other organizations becomes absolutely central. And one of my key points that I've been making for a long time, as you reminded me, I have been kind of bashing this for quite a long time, is that we have completely the wrong framing. This idea that at best, the public sector, government, the state, through all its different types of organizations are there to fix a problem, fix a market failure, as economists like to sound smart when they say it, is very, very limited. It literally means you're always going to be too little too late. You know, you actually have to wait for things to go wrong before you intervene or to think they might go wrong before you intervene. So even the concept of the public good, you know, it sounds good, one of the words is good, is a correction for something that the private sector is not doing. And so I've been trying to reframe that in terms of market shaping, market co-creating, and the public sector itself as you know, value creating, not just facilitating or de-risking the value created elsewhere in business. Let's start, as the book does, with the consensus about business and government that held sway from, I don't know, the kind of 19, late 1970s until quite recently. What was most problematic about that kind of consensus that government was a drain on the economy's vitality and that actually economic growth, the dynamism of the economy all came through private sector entrepreneurship? Well, so there's a historical problem and a theoretical problem. The historical problem is that it's just not true. (laughs) So if you look at, you know, I mean, this was the key point in my book, The Entrepreneurial State, everything that makes any of our smart products smart and not stupid, were actually invested in by risk-taking entrepreneurial government organizations, whether it's the internet, touchscreen display, Siri, GPS, and so on. Now, that's just a fact, right? Then the question is, what actually happened within the organizations of the DARPA type, which now, as you said in your opening, you know, it's kind of fashionable to talk about DARPA, but I've been asking for a long time, what, you know, how was DARPA actually organized? There may be some listeners who don't know what DARPA is, Marianne. I was just I, about to do that. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Ahead of me again. <laughs> DARPA is an innovation agency within the U.S. Department of Defense. And it's always been driven by trying to solve problems, right? So taking big bets to solve big problems that the government was facing when they needed the satellites to communicate. They put in a lot of money and different answers and the internet ended up, well, ARPANET at the time was the answer to that. But similarly, if you look at where GPS came from, it was again, a solution to a problem. The problem was of the Navy in that particular case of trying to know exactly where the ships were in the oceans and so on. So, you know, there's kind of different points here that we could unpack. First of all, you need both private and public actors, or I shouldn't say you need, the history of innovation, especially big innovations, what sometimes we also call general purpose technologies. So kind of radical innovations that have changed how we produce, how we distribute, eventually how we consume, have often been the outcomes of large government investments, A. B, those investments weren't just helicopter money saying, oh, let's spend on innovation. They often, when they were successful, actually came out of particular types of organizations that were problem solving. 
three, unfortunately, many of those problems were driven by kind of military wartime needs. And so one of my big points has been, well, wouldn't it be interesting if we had that same level of ambition, mission, and entrepreneurial kind of spirit within public institutions to solve social problems, not just technological and military kinds of problems. And there's no reason why that can't occur. And this is where we go to the theoretical problem and the ideological problem, which is if at the same time there's a strong ideology and even, you know, backed by a theoretical framework, which I think is a very problematic theoretical framework, that at best the state is there to fix problems, not actually to help direct economic change, and B, that somehow, you know, the state by definition will always be slow, bureaucratic, inertial, and also be very open to getting captured and corrupted, then we kind of ignore the history and just continue with the myth that, yep, government's important to fund some basic things like infrastructure, education, maybe some basic R&D, but then please get out of the way so the real creativity, dynamism, and cool stuff can be done by business. And so the theory bit has really also been driven by training within you know, schools that train civil servants and you know, through theories that, this is going to sound a bit technical, but anyway, public choice theory, new public management, which is basically convinced civil servants that not only should the state only enter to fix a market failure, but guess what? Government failure is even worse than market failure. So beware, do your thing, then please get out of the way. Don't crowd out business, take up as little space as you can. And you know, I'm being a bit facetious here. Obviously, it's, it's, it's a deep history. I can you know, talk to you about people like Buchanan, who was one of the main authors around public choice theory. But the bigger point is that to dismantle what I think is really just a myth, and it's a problematic myth because it then impedes us from actually you know, directing the economy towards really bold ambitions, like inclusive growth, sustainable growth, but even more concretely, what in the book I call moonshots and missions beneath the sustainable development goals. You know, we just need to be quite ambitious in debunking this theory, but also elevating the history. And the history isn't just to talk about the good things that government has done. It has often, of course, failed. But, you know, as we know, riding a bike, (laughs) you need to fall off the bike in order to know how to learn to ride a bike. And so I think we need to also distinguish the kind of failures that governments and public organizations have undergone simply because they were trying to do great things, including the Apollo 1 fire, you know, massive failure. Eventually, they got to the moon versus the kind of failure, which I've increasingly also been writing about, which is kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy that the more, ironically, that you believe this myth that you're there just to fix problems, the less you actually invest within your own organization and the less you actually develop what I call the dynamic capabilities of the public sector. And, you know, and the more you outsource your competence, whether it's to the consulting companies like McKinsey or to the Circos and the G4Ss, which increasingly take on uh, public sector activity and don't even do too well, but that's a whole other story. Anyway, so there's this kind of decimation of public capabilities themselves. And then we just take a snapshot of what everything looks like today and say, oh, look, government's so incapable. Oh, look, government's so slow. Or, oh, look, government keeps you know failing. And so instead of just taking that snapshot, we need to both learn from history, think ahead, not romanticize the past, but definitely ask questions about what can we learn from moments in history where government was actually willing to experiment, willing to take risks, and, and this is a point that maybe we can get to when I be quiet and allow you to ask another question, was able to foster a dynamic symbiotic partnership with business as opposed to what I increasingly see today, which are parasitic public-private partnerships 
and you know one could even use a stronger word from biology kind of predator prey <laughs> ecosystems in the book you talk about and actually I was I was glad that you did there's a little detour into kind of new public management and and I just think it's important for anybody who doesn't really know the story of new public management because in a sense we haven't marked its failure and death and we should have done because there's learning to be had from it so for those people who don't know new public management was really the concerted attempt to drive commercial imperatives into public services premised as you say mariana on a a series of critiques from the intellectual new right of government producer capture public choice theory a set of quite sophisticated economic arguments which sought to demonstrate that government officials could never be trusted to act in the public interest and that democracy could never be trusted to reach rational outcomes and on the basis of this critique we had billions and billions of dollars and pounds of spent all around the world driving commercial practices, whether it was internal markets or competitive institutions, outsourcing, executive pay level, higher, higher pay levels, pay, payment by results, all of this kind of stuff. It went on for about 25 years. It was the dominant way of thinking about public service reform. The jury was out. The jury has returned and it failed. I mean, it just completely failed. It didn't increase innovation. It didn't increase productivity. It certainly didn't increase the morale of people who worked in public services. It helped to explain to a certain extent why, for example, the new Labour government that I worked in poured huge amounts of money into public services, but actually a lot of public service workers didn't feel a great deal of fondness towards that government because they were at the same time being subjected to this new public management methodology. So I think it's important that we talk about that, but it's important that we re- recognise the mistakes that underlay that. Because as you say, Mariana, it all started from a kind of critique of the very capacity of the government to act in the public interest. But it's interesting you say it's dead. I see it everywhere still. And maybe they don't call it that. But you know, I, I just read a report for the BBC on public value, right? I mean, the BBC is such an interesting organization. It's definitely not perfect, but it's interesting because it has had an internal debate, discussion, constant conversation about its role. And it uses this concept of public value, which is a really original word. It's not really used in economics. You know, value, again, has been created in, in business and there's a whole production function and microeconomic theory. And then the role of the state, again, is to kind of facilitate that value creation or to as I mentioned, fixed market failures. So public value is interesting because it both recognizes that the public sector creates value, but also then asks what it should be doing to make sure it's actually creating the right kind of value, given that it is a public institution. And you know, the BBC, for example, has gone against the mainstream of actually investing in all sorts of different areas, including those that traditionally have been seen to be more for commercial entities, for business. So soap operas and talk shows, whereas say, PBS in the U.S. tends to stick more to the market failure view of, you know, investing in important and good types of documentaries, high quality news, but has accepted the idea that these other things like talk shows and soap operas are for business. Whereas the BBC in making soap operas like EastEnders was, you know, trying to drive, again, public value, to put it really simplistically, a soap opera about the working class in EastEnders, very different from Dallas and Dynasty in the U.S. And in doing so, by actually pushing the frontier by redefining in some ways soap operas, they were creating markets and eventually crowding in business. This is the 
you know, I don't like the word crowding in. It's supposed to be a positive word. It's supposed to be instead of what? Instead of crowding out, which basically means you're taking up too much space. You're hurting business entrepreneurship because you are, there's different macro and micro kind of sides of this. So in, in some cases with the macroeconomic theory of crowding out has also to do with what happens to interest rates. But just in the field that we're talking about here, it's, you know, you are taking up space basically that should be for business, whereas crowding in, the idea is that actually by creating a new space, a new frontier, a new landscape, a new market, you then allow a new space for business to play. But it's still called crowding. I mean, even just the language, right? It's always negative. Crowding in. Anyway, so it's just interesting then to ask, you know, okay, great. This is an example of an institution, the BBC, which hasn't bought into that ideology. And yet, and this is, I come back to your point about this idea of being dead, public choice theory, how it gets evaluated by the government and the whole debate about the charter review and, you know, the funding that the BBC should get, you know, these are mainly driven by discussions in the treasury is still the old one, which is kind of like, well, which market failure is it fixing and is it efficient and what's, you know, kind of the productivity? I mean, they don't necessarily use words like productivity, but it still comes down to this idea that, again, its, its role should be much more limited and by taking up more space than it is, it's you know interfering with the market and businesses. And the idea of public value just isn't even really used, if you want, by the Treasury itself. So even though it's a really interesting intra-organizational kind of cultural conversation, I mean, I don't know if that makes sense, cultural conversation, but anyway, it has to do with how the BBC itself sees what it does and how it steers what it does. It hasn't actually become part of the consensus of how we then evaluate a public entity. Definitely other entities don't even use that word. Like, you know, when I talk to people running public museums, they don't necessarily have such a deep discussion about public value like the BBC does. And yet the attack on the BBC has been so successful precisely because these concepts of purpose, you know, public value, et cetera, just aren't how we talk about the role of public entities in the economy. And so it becomes really easy to go back to the easier static <laughs> net present value cost benefit analysis kind of metrics which do come from that whole body of theory that you just you know kind of said is a bit outdated and has been shown to be not very good but still i would say has survived and even universities right i work in a university how researchers are evaluated right now through the research assessment exercise for example you could argue in some ways is also driven by those problematic notions of, you know, the public sector having to meet some sort of efficiency targets in terms of bringing into public institutions notions of efficiency and productivity that, you know, have come from the private sector, which even for the private sector don't work. I mean, that's the irony. Really, you know, great private sector institutions that have, for example, led the way with innovation, often, you know, against all odds did what they did, you know, had to really think about the long run, weren't just caught up with short run metrics took on risk, you know, were willing to accept quite a bit of failure along the way. So had they themselves accepted these kind of static cost-benefit analysis that government forces itself to adhere to, they also wouldn't have innovated. So it actually isn't true for any organization. Now, in the book, Marana, you choose the Apollo mission landing on the moon as your kind of central metaphor, you know, an incredible mission, an enormous amount of money, a huge risk. Many people thought that when Kennedy first announced it, it was impossible to achieve. Ultimately, around kind of, I think you said about 400,000 people employed in one way or another on this ultimately successful mission with all of the 
byproducts that it generated in relation to innovation, many of which were then commercialized. Yet the thing that kind of, I don't know, what I wasn't sure about in the book was that the Apollo mission is so different from the other missions that you talk about, from the what's involved in achieving the sustainable development goals, for example. And in particular, the difference is about human beings. In a sense, yes, it was important to get everybody supporting the Apollo mission to work on that mission, but they were paid to do so. It was their job, and ultimately there was the astronauts who who risked their lives to do it. But if we are going to tackle inequality or climate change or population aging, this is a very complex process that's going to involve not just investment and scientific innovation, but changes in attitudes and norms and, and action at all levels of society. Is there a danger that when we think about something like the Apollo mission, which in the end has technological innovation is the very heart of it, is that the best metaphor for these more social and human problems that you're focused on? So I confront that quite early on and also at the end in the book. So the book is not meant to, and perhaps I should have said this more clearly, but it's not meant to say, hey, look, let's copy and paste (laughs) the Apollo program around, you know, whether it's climate change or issues around inequality. It's really focused mainly, also because it's not a book about everything, but mainly on how to rethink government, not because government is the most important actor, but because, as I mentioned, it's been under-theorized, under-imagined, in many ways decimated. And so those lessons about you know government's willingness to experiment, they had no idea how to get to the moon when Kennedy first kind of set out that you know, famous speech at Rice Stadium. You know, they eventually settled on the lunar orbit rendezvous way, but there was all sorts of other ways that they were considering the amount of, again, mistakes that they were willing to make, the intra-organizational changes that they made after Apollo 1, just before the crash. Gus Grissom, one of the three astronauts, yelled out, Jesus Christ, how the hell are we going to get to the moon if we can't even talk between two or three buildings? Because he couldn't hear what was being said to him from the mission control room. That actually led to a massive reorganization within NASA precisely to get out of what often we hear even today about you know the problems in government, which is that all these departments are working within their little silos, they barely communicate, there isn't joined up thinking. So those kind of intra-organizational changes that were fostered by people like George Mueller when he came from Bell Labs, I just think it's so relevant today. You know, if you are gonna have purpose-driven public actors that are going for really difficult challenges, especially the really difficult, wicked challenges that you just talked about, what does that actually mean for their intra- organizational kind of culture metrics, hence my kind of discussion before about public value and the BBC, but even more than that, how do you get more flexible, more agile, all the spillovers that happened along the way, getting to the moon, you know, all the things, whether it's, you know, camera phones, home insulation, baby formula, and so on, that happened actually as a spillover of trying to do something quite hard. But do we actually know within government today how to measure all these dynamic spillovers that can happen as you're trying to achieve something, the answer is no, because we have these really static metrics, as you know, I talked about before, cost-benefit. But even more interesting for me was how they worked with the private sector. So all the problems underneath the SDGs, you know, there's 17 sustainable development goals, 169 targets. There's no way that government alone or the business sector alone will be able to solve them. They're going to have to partner. But how do you partner? How do you partner in a, you know, in a much more dynamic way than we have today with our kind of, you know, private financing initiative kind of partnerships. And what I found so interesting, and again, it's not about copy and pasting, but learning kind of what worked back then, was that they were very ambitious and confident, NASA. 
they knew that they were, again, very important to the mission. They knew they had to partner with other companies and they took care to design the contracts. This is, you know, I'm increasingly thinking that we need to look at the legal kind of design of many of these relationships. They looked at contracts and actually changed, for example, how procurement was being done away from what at the time were these cost plus contracts that just meant that public budgets were just getting kind of, you know, inflated without actually having any big quality outputs. And they changed it to fixed price, almost like a prize scheme, you could argue, a fixed price contract with constant incentives for improvement, sort of quality improvement and innovation. That ended up fostering a lot of kind of incentives, again, for bottom-up experimentation, but always for very concrete goal. And also super interesting, I couldn't believe it when I found this, NASA put in clauses of no excess profits. <laughs> in other words, of course you can make profits. This isn't about charity. It's not about corporate social responsibility. We want you to you know, do your thing in the business sector, innovate towards great goals, work with us. But you know what? We're doing this together. It's not going to become a gambling casino. And if you look at what's happening at space today with people like Richard Branson or Elon Musk coming into an area which has been massively invested in and backed by public funds, without necessarily then also working closely with government. So you have astronauts up there saying, we can't see anything because of all this debris that ends up happening from all the kind of, you know, turning space into a playground, but also, you know, making billions up in space. Maybe that's fine. But, you know, what is the right amount of profits to be had in a sector that has truly been kind of collectively created with both public and private money. This, of course, is a huge question in health innovation as well. I've been writing about this for a long time in, in the new WHO Council that I'm running now called the Council of the Economics of Health for All. We're raising it, which is, you know, when you have $12 billion you know, worth going into, say, the vaccine, the COVID vaccine for these different vaccines, what's the right kind of deal in terms of both the prices of the vaccine, but also how we govern intellectual property rights? This is just as true with pre-COVID areas, whether it's hepatitis C or, you know, diabetes drugs, you often have huge amounts of public sector money coming in in the early stage, high risk stage, capital intensive stage. And then somehow we forget about it when, you know, the patent system is structured in such a way that doesn't take that into account and the prices of the drugs as well. So again, really interesting lessons in terms of how to actually build a mutualistic symbiotic partnership. It was, you know, definitely not perfect. But another lastly, really interesting lesson I thought was again very relevant today is that NASA was very clear, and I, I cite the person who talked about this, Ernest Brackett, the head of procurement. He was very clear that NASA had to continue to invest in its own brain in order not to get captured by what he called brochuremanship, right? Because at the time, you know, consulting companies didn't exist as much as they do now, and they didn't have PowerPoints. There was different types of private entities that would come in to want to work with NASA, and they would bring in sexy, shiny brochures. <laughs> and he said, if we don't have our own capabilities, again, what I call dynamic capabilities of the public sector, we won't even know how to write the terms of reference. We won't know how to interact with the private sector. And you could see it also from the private sector's point of view, they'll have a bad you know, partner. So they really believed in investing and not just outsourcing their brain, which is a huge problem today. You know, Lord Agnew recently, a Tory Lord in the UK government said that Whitehall had become infantilized because of how much outsourcing was going on. So again, really interesting lesson. Now, that doesn't mean that one then looks at Apollo and says, oh, let's do exactly the same thing for the 17 goals. It does mean, however, I think that, you know, these goals are challenges. They're not missions, the 17 sustainable development goals, no poverty, zero hunger, you know, quality education, and so on. If you turn them into what I call missions, 
you, you know, all of a sudden have a really clear target. And unless you do that, my worry is that we've had these goals now since 2015. We also talk a lot about the grander goals, whether it's the Green Deal, inclusive growth, sustainable growth, but we're simply not getting there. And so one of the reasons I wrote the book, but also have been working with governments for a long time on, on these ideas, is I do think that a mission-oriented approach gives you kind of an investment pathway as well as a collaboration pathway and an intersectoral interactor pathway that goes against the grain of how government often thinks about investment. So, you know, industrial strategy, for example, in the UK for a very long time, it was just basically a list of sectors that the government thought it should help, you know, life sciences, finance, automotive, aerospace, and the creative industry, right? That's like a random list of sectors. There's many other sectors that are not in that list. And then the next question is to do what? Why should government just give out money to the life sciences strategy? What's the goal? So by having goals, whether it's, you know, I'm just thinking now of the four goals of the 2017 industrial strategy, where I worked very closely with Greg Clark to make sure it was challenge-oriented and not random sectors. Those goals are about clean growth, an aging society, you know, making sure that we harness the power of innovation to help meet the needs of an aging society, future of mobility, the data and AI economy, and so on. So by having these broad challenges, instead of just a random list of sectors, you could say, what would it look like, again, to have then kind of moonshots and missions underneath each of those challenges that are you know, kind of very specific, which mean that you're not just giving out money to, again, a random list of sectors, but really trying to get lots of different sectors to interact together. And that's what then an industrial strategy will help do. So by designing grants, loans, and procurement to really crowd in as many different types of solutions to actually foster or to achieve a goal. So under Future of Mobility, the mission that we worked with, once I set up a commission for mission-oriented innovation and industrial strategy, that's what the name of the commission was, that I chaired with David Willits, we worked very closely with Greg Clark's team and ended up with a mission that said that by 2040, this is the Future Mobility Challenge, by 2040, the UK would try to be at the forefront of safe, sustainable, universally accessible travel, creating congestion and admission-free zero-accident systems. Now, that's a big handful and mouthful of, of words, but it's, it's still much more clear than just saying, oh, we need to invest in transport or you know, even future mobility. It's, it's a goal. And even the fact that it says universally accessible travel means that you're going to have to foster a lot of solutions in you know, areas that have to do with disabilities. And you know, crowding in investment from the business community on the back of public sector leadership in these areas is in the end really what I think the goal of policy should be. What you often have when policy is badly designed is you just end up with different types of incentives or handouts, subsidies, guarantees with no conditions attached, which historically have simply increased profits and not investment. Marion, we're running out of time. So I just want to cover three or four other issues quite quickly if we can. So I often think as someone who's been trying to influence government for many years, there's one thing worse than having your ideas ignored, and that's having your ideas apparently accepted, but not actually understood and properly acted upon. Now, our own government, the UK government, I mean, to say it's ambivalent is an understatement. I mean, it it recently abolished the industrial strategy and the industrial strategy council that I sat on, and then apparently appeared to brief or Downing Street appeared to brief it didn't intend to do it that it was an accident there is a plan for growth which is the successor industrial strategy but 
it has got missions in it, but very little detail of how they're going to be achieved. So do you look at this government with a glass half full sense that they do have something that looks like an industrial strategy? They do talk about missions. They do clearly believe that government has a major role. Or are you pessimistic given the kind of failure to really think through what this involves in the kind of detail that you advocate in the book? I think there's different problems. One is a problem that isn't just about this government, but I, you know, I arrived in the UK about 20 years ago. And since I arrived, the, the name of the ministry or the department that deals with industrial strategy has changed three or four times, <laughs> right? So now it's called Bayes and it might even change. So, you know, Department of Business, Environment, Industrial Strategy, given that they've just decided they don't like the word industrial strategy, I imagine they might even change the name again. But, you know, it's gone through all these different changes. Each time that the name changes, it kind of exudes this level of kind of insecurity of what its role is, right? And I think that's just been a, a constant feature of government in the UK of, you know, just changing names, changing organizations, reinventing institutions. And I think it just kind of, in some ways, exudes this lack of confidence, which itself is interesting, because on the other side, this government, for example, is being quite bold and setting up a whole new organization modeled around DARPA. And yet it can't work unless there's a very clear idea of, again, what the point of a DARPA type institution is and how it would work also across government. You know, DARPA has been very successful in the US because it was linked up, for example, with a very specific redesign of procurement policy where every department, whether it's Department of Health, Department of Energy, and so on, spent about 3% of their budgets on procuring and solutions from small and medium enterprises. And DARPA has worked very closely with that kind of program. And so it's not just like one institution all on its own to do kind of, you know, high risk research in particular areas. It has been part of the way that the US government has thought about innovation across the different departments, but also, you know, focused on, again, big problems. And underlying DARPA, of course, as I mentioned, it's in the Department of Defense, is a defense system. And on the one hand, I've been arguing, yes, let's do that same kind of thing, just not always thinking about the military. On the other hand, we should learn from how the military worked, which is there was a strong kind of military industrial complex. So what does it mean to have kind of health missions or environmental missions without a strong health system? And so this government is one that has, unfortunately, also on the back of some, a previous government, been underinvesting in the health system. We've realized this more than ever during covid but you can't have an ARPA-H or, you know, an ARPA dealing with health innovation acting like DARPA does in the U.S. if underlying it is a weak health system because it's being under-resourced or constantly having to kind of defend itself. Just think of the big junior doctor strike that was occurring before COVID hit. So by just mythologizing an institution of an ARPA, or here we're calling it ADIA, you can't just kind of mythologize an institution without seeing the whole system around it. And when it's that system around it, which I think is quite sick here, you know, that's going to make it very hard for then the standalone institution to work. But on top of that, as I was mentioning in the beginning, DARPA has worked when it was really kind of mission and challenge oriented. And the problem is that the narrative of this government, you know, has not really talked about many challenges beyond Brexit. And so do we actually have a really strong green policy? And do we want to, you know, as, as David Cameron had once said, but then didn't deliver, be the greenest government ever? If the answer is no, then what are the actual challenges and missions really driving its innovation policy? I'm less worried by the fact that they you know, came out awkwardly saying that they no longer wanted to call it industrial strategy, simply because that seems to be a constant feature. They're constantly reinventing the terms. But 
as you rightly said, there is still an innovation policy in this government, but it seems to just be kind of picking and choosing bits here, bits there, like the ARPA kind of organization without really thinking through the whole system of innovation, but also the system of government. Final question, Maria. We talked earlier, didn't we, about the rise of new right thinking, neoliberal thought. And really, when we think about the people we associate with that, you know, you talked about Buchanan, but you could talk about an influence of Hayek, you could talk about Friedman. They're all men, just about. One of the points you make at the end of your book, right at the end of your book, is the the new economics, the kind of critique of that, which is an economics which is much more concerned with political economy, with social progress, social justice, and which sees government with the right skills and the right approach being a force, a vital force for good. A lot of the economists of this new analysis are women. And, you know, there's, if I think of some, you know, three of the most influential economists in the world right now are you, Kate Rayworth, with her work on the circular economy, Stephanie Kelton, where they work on modern monetary theory. Do you, do you think there's something significant about the fact that we're seeing more women leading thought in economics? And this is also associated with this different, more, I would say, kind of more grounded form of economic analysis. I think so. I mean, what I think I say in that chapter at the end is also that, you know, what these women to me represent are scholars who are putting life at the center of the economy instead of the economy at the center of life. And so if you look at Eleanor Ostrom's work on the commons, Stephanie Kelton's work on outcomes-based budgeting, you know, worry about what you're actually trying to do and then get the budgeting to work for that, as opposed to just kind of saying, oh, here's the limits of our budget. Let's see what we can do with that and Kate's work on the circular economy and really bringing that to the center of how every sector works instead of just thinking of it as a kind of a, a bit for how we think about the, the environment. I just think it's, it's, it's very original thinking and also it's very much driven by care. You know, it's not just that women have often been at the center of the caring economy, but these are, for example, women who really put care for the planet, care for people at the center of how they think about political economy itself. And by the way, both Kate... Ray Worth and Stephanie Kelton are in this uh, 11 women council that I'm chairing for the World Health Organization called the Council on the Economics of Health for All. And they're really the ideas start with the ambition, health for all. And this is a global ambition. We realize how weak global health systems are. And then backtrack and ask, what does it mean for the economy? What does it mean for budgeting, procurement, public-private partnerships, and so on? I do just want to say one thing, because I probably didn't answer it strongly enough. The book argues very strongly that today's social problems, like health for all is a social problem, requires behavioral change, technological change, organizational change, political change, regulatory change. So it is absolutely harder than going to the moon and back. But <laughs> reinventing the public sector, reimagining its relationship with all these different types of organizations that will be central to achieving any of the goals that we've been talking about. If we don't do that, then you can have as much regulation, as much behavioral change as you want. We're not going to get the change that we need. So really what the book is trying to do is a real call for action for, to reimagine government, to really also be a learning organization, as well as a listening organization. So many of the great advances we've had in the last 200 years also occurred because of social movements. We wouldn't have weekends. We wouldn't have the eight-hour workday. We'd still have children working in factories without trade unions. You know, that was a labor movement. Today, we have the Black Lives Matter movement. We have the Me Too movement. We have Fridays for the Future, you know, students striking 
because of you know how they see the previous generations not having done their job on climate change. And so what does it mean also at that level for the you know for civil servants, for public organizations to listen and to interact with movements in a way that's not tokenistic? It's not just patting Greta on the head and saying, oh, how cute, a 16-year-old, 18-year-old now cares about climate change, but actually allowing itself, allowing the public institution itself to be vulnerable, to be listening, to be interacting. And that means, for example, interacting with citizen assemblies or, you know, with the work that I'm doing in Camden with Georgia Gould, we're co-chairing the Camden Renewal Commission. We're trying to bring the goals around carbon neutrality at the level of the housing estates in Camden. Well, that means listening to people who live (laughs) in the housing estates and not just kind of top-down lecturing about sustainable living. And that's the hard part, but it's also the part that I think has the potential to really make change because we have such a polarized society right now. Just look in the US with Trump or here with Brexit, that really also listening, but getting people to really understand the possible effect that policy can have on their everyday living, you know, that is just so needed right now, I think, for for building back better in a real way and not just uh, in a slogan way. Great. Well, Mariana, thank you so much for, for joining us. Mission Economy, a moonshot guide to changing capitalism is is out now, but I can also recommend Mariana's other fantastic book it's on the entrepreneurial state and on the idea of value. The book's full of great stories, things you want to share with people, but it's also a very kind of practical book about how it is mission-driven government action can make a difference. And that's an urgent challenge for us now. Mariana, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Matthew. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.